Are we going to stay on topic this week? <laughs> I think so. I hope. Ooh. Welcome to Go Additive, where your hosts combine their real-world professional 3D printing experience to deliver valuable opinions that will help you peer behind the curtain of the additive industry. And now, Go Engineer's own Tyler Reed and Tate Brown. That drop does it for I, me. I do love it. It's a blend between something soothing and hype. You made an excellent choice with that. Did you modify that song? I did a few times and uh, pretty much just left it as is. It's yeah. been chopped a little bit. but yeah. That was something you were just so deathly afraid of right, is having a tune that someone would recognize. Someone's going to recognize it, and it's going to pop up somewhere else in some stupid YouTube video, and then I'm going to have to chop it up to the point it's unrecognizable. No, we own it now. Uh, (laughs) With our our, uh, (laughs) 10 listeners. Unknown number of listeners. I think we talked about this before. It's actually really hard to get uh, good metrics on who is listening and how many people and when and whatnot. You would think that there would be a, a good service. Maybe there is. Mm, I don't think so because I, I did some looking into it with a, like advertisers and all mm-hmm. that. They can't really know. They can ask like, hey, what are your listens? What are this, that, the other? And you can really, you can figure out ways to fudge the numbers yeah. pretty easy. But I have a good feel. We're growing. We're growing. I look almost every day just to see <laughs> how things are going. Just, just once a day? <laughs> yeah. And well, and I like to give it a look. I trust you. I like to see what, you know, how we're trending because we release our episodes on Fridays lately. Lately, <laughs> and, yeah. And so I have to go the whole weekend without being able to check anything. And it... Uh, Do you live in a house without internet? No, I just... I disconnect. Okay. Okay. I try to I try <laughs> to disconnect. So yeah. Well, today's Thursday and it's first thing in the morning. And right and early. We we've, we've got our caffeinated beverages of uh-huh. choice. Yep, we're ready. Last weekend was uh, daylight savings time. And for the, the first time in many, many years, it snuck up on me. I woke up Sunday morning very confused. Why? Well, because... Because you slept in an extra hour? No, because I woke up and, like, I pay attention to the sunrise mm-hmm. and the amount of light and whatnot when I'm waking up, and it was off. So it definitely confused me. And <laughs> I think I'm... I want to hear your opinion on this. Should daylight savings continue? No. I agree with that. Given my Native American heritage... Also, it's just, it's not right. You should be paying attention to the sunrise. You know, that's how my culture kind of lives by that. You know, Mm -hmm. you wake up before the sun to greet the sun every day. And um, there's some certain wisdom in that, you know, regardless of the season. And we can't actually lengthen the day, right? Right. We We can shift our time, I guess. But yeah. Just messes up the routine. That's how humans evolved. Like we didn't have artificial light in the real sense of it until like the last 
0.0001% of human evolution. Why are you looking at me like that? I don't know. It's just, it's <laughs> actually kind of hard. It's hard. He was on... in awe of my human evolution. Yeah. I am in awe of your evolution <laughs> for sure. You're the pinnacle of yeah. human evolution, in That's my true. opinion. But uh, it's hard to recover from it. The time change. Yeah. Especially if you're not mindful of it. Like I went into Saturday, not given any cares. I was like, time yeah. doesn't exist to me on Saturdays. <laughs> I just let it rip. You know, yeah. the time doesn't exist. It only runs out. You yeah. know what I mean? And then yeah. Sunday, I did the exact same thing. Monday, I'm like, oh man, oh boy. Hit, hit me like a ton of bricks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was scrambling so to get to work. If you eliminated the time change, would you want to stay on daylight savings time or standard time? I don't even know which is which. So we're Are currently we on standard time. We're currently right now? on daylight savings time. Daylight savings is <sighs> activated right now. <laughs> well, I would I like where we're at right now. Um, but I think that's also just I like this time of year. You know, we've got twelve hours of daylight right now. Close. Yeah. And it's the best. It's you actually have some time to if you want to mow your lawn, if you yeah. want to do some work around the house, whatever, you can do it. You don't feel like just getting home and sitting down. It boils down to, would you rather have the extra sunlight in the late in the evening, or would you prefer to have the sunlight in the morning? If you prefer to have the sunlight in the morning, you want to be on standard time. If you prefer it in the afternoon, you want to be on daylight time. Yeah. I very much think it depends on your job. Where uh, we have a, yeah, that's an indoor... True job. Yeah. It's and like a standard it doesn't matter. Standard you're you're out of here, you know, somewhere between five, six o'clock. Mm -hmm. That extra hour in the evening is kind of nice. Right. For yeah. me it's beneficial to have that daylight in the evening. My understanding is that states can uh pick and choose out mm -hmm. of daylight savings time, but if they do, they have to be on standard time. So they could not like Arizona doesn't have daylight, doesn't observe daylight savings time, but they have to be on standard time. That's my understanding of the law. You couldn't currently choose to permanently be on daylight time. Gotcha. Interesting fact there, Tyler Reed. Thank you. So topic of the day, take that last swig of that coffee. It <sighs> smells nice. Don't smell my coffee. That coffee you're not, smells good. You're not allowed to smell my coffee. I, I don't have a choice. <laughs> In you this little plug, room? You can plug your nose. No. So I'll print you some plugs. Pop them in <laughs> because you do not partake in the coffee. I, but I do partake of highly caffeinated beverages. That's true. Just but not coffee. It's so gross. Co it smells so good. I was, I was you word for word three years ago. And I told you this story. My wife got me into Mm -hmm. Got me into the coffee, and now I'm not a coffee snob, and I don't. And yeah, drink. you are. You just did it to me. Well, that's just because I'm trying to create. You look down your nose on me because <laughs> I'm drinking Red Bull. Yeah, you're an a Red Bull elitist. Yeah, I'm I'm above those monster guys. So the topic of the day, <laughs> <laughs> I think we're gonna skip the news this week because honestly, I haven't been paying attention, and that's all we did last week. So we either did you a major service or a disservice, but yeah, we're, we're cruising into our topic. Yeah. Cause I want to get to it. And the topic is, um, 
it's actually hard to say in, in one sentence because you can we, want, we want to touch on a few things. But I think the best way I could put it is <laughs> what, sh- what should additive manufacturing mean to a machinist? Like why should a machinist care about additive? Is that fair? Is that what we agreed to talk about? Yeah, yeah. What interested you about that idea? Oh, well, here's an example. And this might kind of encapsulate my thoughts. Yesterday, I was in a meeting with a company we all know and love. They make movies. And this is an engineering crew. They renamed Engineer. That's the hint that I'll (laughs) I'll give you guys. Okay. Um, Whether or not you know what that even means, whatever. But... They they reimagined that word. Um, <laughs> Subtle. Yeah. Anyway, really cool group of guys. Um, they talked a little bit about what they're doing. They have a few Stratasys machines in-house already. They've got three. Uh, they're looking at possibly getting a fourth or maybe trading in an older system. And they love them. They pretty much print in ABS only. Uh They've got their applications pretty much dialed in. And when we talked about some of the equipment that they print, uh-huh. they print these chassis for like full-size human heads, for example. Okay. And like animatronics? Yep. Okay. And so they're printing the framework inside of, of the space of a human head, for okay. example, and they're putting skin around it. One of the struggles they run into is, I guess, that when they're recording, that skin can move depending on material. So when you're using um, like a plastic chassis, there's enough deflection in the skin that it messes things up for them. Hmm. Uh, So they've actually gone away from using plastics in those scenarios. They just don't have the rigidity? Yeah, but admittedly so, they haven't actually ever gone and optimized those chassis for additive. Okay. Uh, so even when they're making it out of plastic, they're taking their traditional CNC type aluminum designs and they're just printing those okay. as is. So uh, there's some room for growth there for sure. Obviously, you know, if you have less mass that you're moving around, it's not going to deflect as much. Yeah. So if you could optimize the design, it could absolutely be a good fit. Or just change the material, right? You might have an opportunity there for like an, a carbon-filled ABS. Right. Um, probably stick with ABS. Something stiffer. Yeah. And I, to wrap that thought up, it, they just they hire a lot of guys, um, older gentlemen from the CNC industry within aerospace. Okay. And so (laughs) those guys don't like change. Those aerospace machinists just, they want to machine in aluminum and, you know, other metals as well. But I think aluminum is just kind of the machinist metal of choice, like butter, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, Anyway, I, I think that's a trait. The resistance for to change humans in general. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, like we resist change, and I already start to feel it. Being in my mid thirties, I already see myself uh, becoming susceptible to that. You're the old guy that tells his kid, "If it ain't broke, don't fix it." You're gonna be. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I could be. Yeah, I have a tendency to break things that are perfectly fine personally. But when it comes to changing software, changing processes, changing industries, careers, you have you already have this inertia in your life and it can be hard to uh, sit back and reevaluate and make big changes and even small changes. You know, like say, say somebody came to you and was like, hey, um, instead of PowerPoint, we want to use such and such slideshow software. It's kind of meaningless in the grand scheme of life, but I don't know. Me personally, my gut reaction would be like, I don't want to do that. Yeah. It's, it takes a while of doing something new to realize, okay, this mm-hmm. actually is better. And it's always nice when that is the case. What's the worst is when you do try something new yeah, and you discover that it's actually not a better way. The old way was right. truly better. And you have to be careful about that because it's so easy to make that decision without fully evaluating or vetting the new platform or whatever you are changing to. You got to be looking for ways to make it work. Yeah, exactly. That's true. Which if you're looking for things about it that don't work, you're you're going to, yeah, you're going to find it either way. Yeah. I agree with that. The reason why this topic piqued my interest is that more and more you're hearing uh, 3D printing OEMs talk about going into production you talk about or you hear them kind of evaluating market size or potential market size they'll say you know the total market size for uh, metal components is or manufacturing is a hundred billion dollars a year or something like that and we're trying to capture one percent of it mm-hmm. but it's always in terms of production manufacturing that we know, They've told us that's their end goal. And that's kind of where everybody wants additive manufacturing to be, especially if you're in the industry because it's very valuable. So we know that's where they want to go. And I think that history tells us they're going to get there. If that's where they're going, if that's where they want to be and they have good technology, they have good people, they have routes there, Uh, toward that goal, they'll get there. So it's just a matter of time. And uh, I do think that like the traditional machine shop, mm, what it looks like today will change over the next 10 years. That's my guess. How so? What does it, explain what it does look like today. Okay. Uh, It varies, but more or less a machine shop. and, And in this case, I'm sort of talking about like a job shop. So you could call it a contract manufacturer, call it a job shop, machine shop, but it is an organization that offers parts as a service. So they will evaluate incoming bids, people who want parts made. They'll take a look at them. They'll evaluate them for manufacturability. They will evaluate them for, you know, method of manufacture. And uh, they'll assess, okay, do I have the capability of creating this part? And if they do, then they will estimate, you know, what is my expense for creating that part? They'll add some margin and then they'll 
you know, deliver a quote back. Say, hey, we can deliver that part in this quantity, in this time period for this cost. And there is, if you're looking at those individual steps, there's a lot of incentive for companies to be able to say, yes, we can create that part. And once they get past that hurdle, the incentive is to reduce their cost, either to increase their margin or to come in and win that job because they bid lower. Uh, that's that's the dynamic today. So I don't think that fundamental uh, business plan changes, that value prop doesn't change, but more and more customers are going to be approaching them with parts that need to be additively manufactured. That's the direction the industry's going. Mm. And in order to say yes, in order to stay competitive, I think these organizations are going to have to begin incorporating additive into their tool set. Interesting. I actually disagree. Do you? Yeah. What part? Um, I don't think, and I could be totally wrong, but I, I still think additive and subtractive are different enough as like uh, services that they may not come, they, they may not fully merge. Um, like, I just don't imagine the CNC shops that I've been in, mm -hmm. uh, or the machine shops, I should say. Uh, I don't imagine them providing quotes for additive. Really? Yeah, but I do imagine designs changing. So yeah. on the same, I don't even really know why I would disagree. There's going to be 3D printers in machine shops. Mm -hmm. I just don't think it's for the same reasons. I don't think they're necessarily going to be getting parts that can only be additively manufactured. I just sure. think that there will be more designs that benefit from being additively manufactured or, or that line will switch to where it's more cost effective to go yeah. that route. And I think that is... That, that's probably just sloppy language on my part because very few parts can only be additively manufactured, but they can only be additively manufactured cost-effectively. You add the component of cost. Okay. Um, but All we, my language is sloppy, so. <laughs> <laughs> we know that end-use metal parts need to be machined, right? Yeah. So... Are you envisioning a, a future where you have two entities and the printers, yes, the people no. who are printing, are sending their parts to another entity to be machined? Or are they doing it in-house, but their origin story is, we were printers first and then we became machinists? Or my theory is that you will have machinists becoming printers. I see it the other way around. All right, all right. <laughs> I, so, which is actually probably a good thing, and it means it can go either way. Um, you know, like my experience with machine shops goes back uh, a few years, uh -huh. but I've had the opportunity to really be involved with a few, with yeah. several of my jobs, even going back to when I was working for an industrial supply company, I sold to some machine shops. So I spent some time- okay understanding, learning about... So you would fall into my bucket. In that you... You were a machinist first. Eh. Technically, I was a 3D printer first. Really? Yeah, because high school, junior year. <laughs> we, got a, we got a 3D printer. 
Count okay. it. Okay. Okay. If you want to count it. <laughs> but uh, I didn't actually interact with any of the machines originally. You know, I was just learning about machine shops through the sales um, cycle. Yeah. So selling them tooling, trying to help them save money on tooling, longer lasting tooling, that sort of thing. Uh, coolant. Mm-hmm. They're consumables. Yeah. And I wasn't selling machines themselves. I was more just only selling consumables. Mm-hmm. Anyway, then I got the job with Novatech, which had an in-house machine shop, mm-hmm. tons of capability. And then they had like their little play shop. And that's where we got to be, you know, with the two Tormox. So uh, we were 3D printing there. It all kind of happened at once for me, yeah. if I'm being honest. Yeah. It's kind of a tie game. I wouldn't be surprised that if in the short term, what you're saying is more common, where you have startups who are saying, hey, we have capital, we want to be on the cutting edge of manufacturing, we want to change things up, we want a modern workplace, we want to use modern tools, we're going to buy printers as our first tool. I think for in the short term, that's going to be more common. However, people and organizations who already have experience in evaluating jobs, quoting, uh, creating parts to spec, inspecting, and delivering, they have a significant competitive advantage over a company who is just getting started in the space with printing. And it's only a matter of time before I think the pendulum swings over and the machine shops, the contract manufacturers start incorporating additive into their already very robust uh, businesses. And so I think if we're looking at like five to 10 years out, that's that's gonna be where the additive uh, is happening. Adapt or die. Yeah. I think, I think you know, uh, Every machine shop that I know, aside from the one in the intellectual property development space, mm-hmm. is just living on the edge, you know, bid to bid, True. job to job. Yeah. And it's very cutthroat, yeah, which is all absolutely. the more all the more incentive to be for better. them to have to bring on a new tool set that gives them a competitive advantage. True. And it opens up the door to more, probably more lucrative jobs for one and a broader array of jobs. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's, this, this is why, sorry to cut you off there. This is why we felt like it was important to touch this on, touch on this topic. Cause I think we have to, we feel compelled to like tell them there's a lot of opportunity out there. Yeah, absolutely. And th- what's crazy is there's a disconnect somewhere because like my, uh, my buddy that I've caught that is a machinist, also enjoys 3D printing, but mm-hmm. they don't blend. Like once he's at work in the machine shop, yeah, 3D printing no longer exists. And I think their workflows are just so dialed in, or at least they think they're so dialed in. Mm-hmm. They know better than me. Um, but they go grab a hunk of aluminum off the shelf or some soft jaws, and and they whip up some soft jaws in a few minutes. And you should see this yeah. guy work. Like it, it's actually a thing of beauty. Yeah, <laughs> he's. He's, he's, he walks about six feet from side to side from his computer where he's programming to his machine. Very, very short distance, right? So he makes changes on the fly 
and he's very, very efficient about it. Um, I, it, I think what's hard about machinists is they've been trained to be efficient so much so that any, like any step off that six foot path for him is like a distraction. Mm -hmm. It's a time waste, which I don't know. Machining is just an interesting workflow. You, you, you do all this work in your cam, you figure it out. You might make some tweaks. You might make a bad part or two. It's kind of like with 3d printing. And then you go full ramp up production and then you're basically just hitting the button yeah. and running parts. Yeah. At which point they usually go to another machine and they start getting production going mm -hmm. on that if they have those machines. But um, the adoption of 3D printing, it's just, I know there are shops that have, so I don't want to make it sound like there aren't. I'm just trying to basically let people know what I've seen. Yeah. And that's just kind of like you we, we've stated from the very beginning, just big time resistance to change why it's happening. I'm just spitballing here. <laughs> so you're totally right. These machine shops live and die by uh, their margins and also their machine uptime and, you know, just creating as many chips per day as possible. And so many machine shops have, you know, lean manufacturing initiatives. They implement processes and policies that are meant to, you know, eliminate distractions, mm -hmm. eliminate uh, potential rework and scrap rates, and just fine tune, like, <laughs> once a person's on the clock, do not give them the opportunity to mess up and or waste time, et cetera. All the more reason to bring in 3D printing, but in a different way, because I think previously we were talking more about printers as a tool to create parts for customers, which that is happening, but I think we've only just barely tapped that. I am seeing uh, 3D printing making inroads right now into the machine shop through the creation of things like organizational tools, jigs and fixtures and, you know, the things that operators and machinists and programmers, shop foremen, they have an idea for something, but they don't necessarily have the time to cam it out, pull a machine out of production to create this part where a printer, you know, you, with that digital workflow, you send it, you hit print, it creates it, you know, the, the, that day or the next day. Yeah. And they are low value parts in the sense that they're not selling those parts, but they can be very high value parts in the sense that they can enhance the organizational initiatives, safety initiatives, that sort of thing in the shop. I think that's where we're at right now. Yeah. But even that takes time. I, Absolutely. I the one thing I keep thinking is like how, you know, you talked about lean initiatives. Most machine shops have been around for a minute. You know, they're, how often do you see a brand new one? Yeah. You know, so <laughs> whether they are or aren't isn't really my place to say, but uh, they're running the ragged edge of what they're capable of. And, you know, they, they know what their costs are. Uh, they know where they're losing some, this, that, the other. My mm -hmm. point being, any hiccup in that, it never helps them. It only hurts them. 
It, True. <laughs> the only time they're getting helped is when they're – the only time they are making money is when they are running that ragged edge, right? Yeah. Like it's not – it's not what people think it is. You know, if you've got a bill for a CNC part before, it's probably, you know, you've looked at it and your eyeballs grow three sizes. It's expensive. Uh-huh. Especially if you're doing onesie twosie stuff. Yeah. Um, but they are running ragged. Mm-hmm. They're changing out end mills because one can do 10 more parts, you know. Absolutely. And they're going to spend a little bit more money on that end mill to just get those those few more parts. Oh, so absolutely. It, all these little things add up. In some ways, you could say that implementing additive in, in substantial ways is a luxury that really only very healthy machine shops could do yeah, today. Right. And that's why I think it's more of a, and maybe this is the inroad, is through companies like the IP development company, not necessarily standalone CNC shops or job shops. Yeah. But how many places have you talked to that they they just so happen to have a couple five-axis machines or a five-axis machine or even just a three-axis mill in their kind of development center? Uh-huh. You know, they've got a drill press, you know, your standard shop tools, and then they have this little CNC or a manual mill or something. Yeah. Those are the people that I've seen that are open-minded and they're adopting it because they're kind of, um, they're not a production style shop. Sure. So their jobs don't depend on pure efficiency. A lot of the things they do are more experimental. So you write off a lot of the downtime because it's it's happened as a result of trying something new. I, I do see that. I agree 100%. And I think that it's sort of a, it's a discussion of scale because you are going to have larger OEMs that have the cash flow and the initiative to experiment and prove out. What I anticipate happening is that, say, a, a large OEM like this in aerospace or energy or transportation or something like that, they don't really want the expense of the capital equipment they don't generally want to manufacture their own parts. So they're going to prove it out. Their engineers are going to design parts, and then they will go out to their supply chain and say, these are the parts we need, who can make them? So one OEM might be fed by 10 or 50 uh, contractors. And that's once once that transition happens, then we do start to see a, a huge proliferation and adoption of additive in the supply chain. And that's the step I'm talking about. Hmm. I I think, well, th- this is all speculative. It is. Speculative. It it's- is. It makes you wonder what happened back when there was a transition from manual machining to CNC machining. Because it was a similar paradigm shift, right? When did that happen? I'm not old. I'm not old enough. You're not old enough, are you? So I am old. You're a couple years older than me. I know, but I am old enough to have interacted with many people who lived through that. So within the scope of this job here, I've spent hundreds of hours demonstrating CAM software, training CAM software, interacting with machinists. That was the main. 
uh, part of my job for a long time. And I was that person oftentimes coming to older machinists saying, hey, look at this CAM software. It will make you more efficient. It will make you more productive. It will reduce your scrap rate. It will reduce your programming time. And there were still people who had never interacted with CAM software. And they were still in the mindset of either uh, manual machining or programming at the machine with uh, just a conversational control. And there were other people who were older that had already gone through that transition. So to answer your question, I think it's fair to say like late, well, actually probably mid 80s to late 90s is where that transition really happened from machine shops that were primarily manual transitioning over to primarily CNC controlled, mid 80s to late 90s. Okay. Um, my father-in-law is one of these people that was you've told yeah and it's it's a good uh it's a good anecdote to share sure be, because he was a machinist in cape canaveral and he was in the supply chain for nasa the space the shuttle program at the time manual machinist that's got to be a top tier job right you're doing aerospace components the parts that you're making are literally going into orbit it's it's awesome and, you know, they're also at the cutting edge of what's being done. And at some point, the way my wife tells a story is that their shop was transitioning over to CNC control. And, you know, he wasn't comfortable with the computers and he resisted it. And over the span of years, that just became untenable. If you're a machine shop and you're trying to move forward and your employees are impeding that, what are you going to do? Are you going to just say, okay, well, all right, we'll just do it the old way. No, the machine shop is going to shed that extra weight. He lost that job. He never got back into the industry. It was opportunity lost. And too many people become afraid of change and lose sight of the opportunity. I guarantee that that machine shop would have much preferred someone who had decades of manual machining experience to begin operating their CNC machines rather than a green new person fresh out of technical school because they have valuable experience that transitions over. They have to be willing to do it. Anybody who's willing to do it and take that experience and capitalize on it, leverage it and bring it into a new space they will, if you have that mindset, no matter what the particulars of the scenario are, if you have that mindset, you will be successful and you will have a long career. Yeah. I, so what you're, how do you suggest people get going? If you're a machinist right now listening to this, or if, if, if you're an additive thinking about machining, yeah, that's who's going to benefit most from this, but I could be wrong. There's, there's probably other beneficiaries, but well, how do we get started? So let's stick with a person who's in the machining industry. Let's say you're an operator or you're a CAM programmer. You're just quote unquote machinist. Mm -hmm. If you're not already doing it, or if you're not already doing this, get a 3D printer and use it at home. That would be my number one suggestion because- Four or 500 bucks? Yeah, the barrier to entry is so low. Uh, get what you can afford because 
it's one of those things where a uh, dollar spent is like a dollar of value. Yeah. Um, don't don't get the cheapest machine out there, and you don't have to get the most expensive machine out there. But I would say five hundred to three thousand dollars, somewhere in that range, would get you a decent uh, filament-based machine, and start learning about printing. Start learning about designing parts for printing. Learn about the decision-making process of printing parts. How does orientation affect the build? And come at it from a point of view of a machinist. How does orientation affect the print time? How does the print time affect the overall cost of the part? How does orientation affect the material properties, the strength of the part? Okay. How are you going to balance something as simple as orientation to deliver maybe options to a potential customer? Like just come at it from a point of view of, uh, if I were printing parts for a customer, what would I advise? That becomes a very valuable skill set. You could start to transition that into the workplace, which we see all the time with engineers, right? Yeah. And those engineers become more valuable to their organizations in most cases. Um, there are ways that you could do it where it's distracting and it could be seen as, and there are company cultures where it could be seen as a distraction and undervalued. Well, that's exactly what we're talking about. Well, that's a company <laughs> culture thing. And if you're in a culture like but that, where the they- The culture of machine shops is kind of like exactly where we're headed with this. Yeah. The culture is it's not- I know it's much easier said than done, but if you're working for a company that disincentivizes you from innovating, you should try to get into a different company. <laughs> yeah. Because there are so many good companies out there that want people who are innovative and who just really desire people who are self-starters and do things on their own and are invested into the health and success of their trade. There are companies out there who value that. Yeah. Many of them. If you're not in one of those companies, you're just doing yourself a disservice by staying in there any longer than you than necessary. Yeah. I worked for a company that didn't have a CNC machine. It bummed me out big time after coming from where I did, but I had my little router, yeah. right? We ended up using that <laughs> on jobs. Yeah. Like I, I milled some extruded aluminum that they had done for some monorail and we needed some counter bores and everyone was just mesmerized. Mm -hmm. When I brought that thing in to see this little router milling out aluminum, people were going nuts. But yeah, uh, I guess to, to your point, it does create some value. It, it is a selling point of, hey, not only that, but if, if that place were to buy a machine, invest in one, it would be because of that little instance, which true. I have heard through the grapevine they are, but guess who would have been in charge? That That's what I'm saying. Like you now are the guy running the machine shop. If Good that's, point. If that's a route you want to go. Good point. But if nothing else, you're at least someone that, that people in your company come to, hey, how do we utilize this right. best for our processes? And then you're, whether you're in a consulting type role or, or whatever, it's absolutely valuable. Yeah. So to prove your point. You become 
the expert on an emerging technology that still not many people know and understand. And maybe they don't instantly become, you know, the the shop foreman, but they will become the owner of that system. Yeah. And we know 3D printers, like, they prove themselves. They prove their value very quickly. You've got to have someone behind the helm that's creative. Now, that's for a machinist who wants to create value, intrinsic value in their own organization. If a machinist were to, you know, be willing to jump and uh, change industries and come into a more additive specific industry, then they could instantly become a rock star. I'll just put it out there. The industry is hungry for people who have real machining experience, real manufacturing experience. We said it at the beginning of the episode. These OEMs, they want to get in the machine shop. However, how do you do that? You have to have people who know the machine shop. So they're hiring, uh, they're on a hiring craze for people with real manufacturing experience. I, what are we gonna do to try and get people in machine shops to adopt this? Do we need to dispel any myths? Are there any misconceptions like downtime, like, oh, that's gonna take a ton of downtime or the the cost of the machine's too much or it's just a play Oh, that's play a good toy. question. So what are, when people have their guard up and they're resisting, what arguments are they making? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, what are the objections? Okay, good question. Uh, well, let's brainstorm a little bit. Let's let's think about what we have heard. One, they're slow. We could start there. Uh, they're different, right? Lights out machining, if you're not familiar with that term, it is when in the CNC world, when you start a job, you leave for the night and the machine continues to, to work overnight. The, the shop lights are out, right? It's closed down. Lights out machining is a lofty goal for machine shops. It's not a given. And in fact, I would say most machine shops do not participate in lights out machining. They just don't have the process control to do it. You know, you were talking about tools lasting a little bit longer. The reality is that tools break. They, their material properties start to degrade. They start to chip. That puts increased load on the tools, et cetera, et cetera. Tools break. In order to do lights out machining, like you have to know for certain, like you either have a really strong understanding of the lifespan of a tool, or you have to have some sort of maybe like probing cycle that validates that a tool is still there and then continues on machining. And if it doesn't, then it does something else, grabs another tool or stops. Like you have to have a you know, pretty significant amount of process control to have the confidence to do lights out machining. Printers are lights out machines from day one. So that alone is a little bit different concept. Uh, but relatively speaking, they are slow, but if you match like a one-to-one -one comparison, if you're gonna do quantity one part, Let's look at the total process time. Let's look at the cam time, the procurement of the tooling, the setup of the tooling, the dry run, and then the actual run on the CNC machine versus the, the other, the alternative processing in your slicing software, loading the right material, hitting print, that's it. So when you look at it that way, 
It's actually probably fairly competitive. Uh, maybe material selection is another one. Obviously, we're a lot more limited in materials that are available to us in the additive world. And that's probably going to eliminate, you know, a lot of different uh, potential applications. But the scope of applications that are still applicable within the materials that are available to us is still huge. Yeah. So I don't think that's a very valid... The only reason why that would be a valid excuse would be if you were evaluating a printer for one specific job, one specific application or task, right? As a broad, broad, you know, general tool to bring into a machine shop, that's not a valid excuse. Now, one that might be difficult is cost. Do What are your thoughts on the cost uh, conversation 3D printers versus CNC machines. Oh, man. I was actually thinking of this at the start of the episode. Um, I mean, you and I know that you can get a good used machine, CNC. Yeah. For under or around 20 grand, you know, uh, depending on what you're looking for. And you can go up to 100 grand yeah. in a used machine. Yeah. You could also buy new. I will uh, say that buying used CNC equipment is not as cut, cut and dry as <laughs> some people make yeah. it out to be. Yeah. I do think that like the professional industry is pretty good about being wary yeah. of used CNC equipment. And the the signs are there if it's uh you know, if it's got worn out ball screws and stuff like you, you can do your checkups. Yeah, sometimes it's difficult, you know, the machine would have to be under full power and capable of machining parts to really evaluate it. And many times that's not the case. So you might buy a machine that doesn't have power, but they say, Hey, it was taken out of service. You fire it up and you realize that the ball screws are worn or the guide rails are You're going to find something. The <laughs> spindle drive is broken. You know, the servo motors are broken and suddenly that $20,000 machine is actually like $40,000. Yeah. Yeah. So let's just say, um, for the sake let's of argument, new. Yeah, let's go uh, Tormach PCNC no. 1100. Okay, that's where you uh, want to start? Yeah, okay, because okay. I think if you're going to compare it to a, let's say, price range-wise, like an F-170. Okay. So let's Comparable just say- Comparable then. Yeah, let's just say uh, a Stratasys F-170 versus a Tormach PCNC 440 or 1100 even. Uh-huh. Imagine these as prototype machines. You're a machine shop and you're going to buy one of these things. Is that how you want to do it? Well, I, the way I see it, objection-wise, is when you come in and say, hey, you know, we have, say your boss comes to you, we've got... Uh, what existing machines do they have? Because I think that's the context of... Mm, rarely is someone... Say they've got four or five axis machines, a manual mill, and a lathe. Okay. So they're, well they're mostly, yeah. Well-equipped machine shop. Yep. So they're looking at this not to really increase production so much, but more of an experimental machine. Okay. They have, they have this little bit of budget. They want to try and improve things. Even if this, whatever this machine is, whether it's additive or, or subtractive, say it's just soft jaws or experimental work holding. Yeah. That's its primary job. Okay. Um, it would function to give the the shop some extra capacity so that when they want to experiment or when they want to prototype, 
they don't have to take a machine out of production. Right. I think this is a very fair scenario that we do see. Yeah. So I I see that being um I see this being a win for additive personally coming into it because if the machine shop is not necessarily looking to increase production, right? Or throughput, mm-hmm. you're in a good spot. You know, uh yeah. not that you can't improve throughput with additive on your side, but you know, a lot of shops say, well, I if I have extra budget, I want this other machine. Yeah. I want this same machine that I have, but another one. Then our throughput goes up. We make more money, right? Mm-hmm. That's just the typical line of thinking. Um, with an additive machine that can work lights out, so say I need soft jaws for the morning, if it's the end of the shift and no, there's no night shift, those soft jaws aren't getting done. Right. Versus additive, I can print those. So I can hit... I can hit go yeah. when I leave at the end of my shift or right then and there. When I come back in the morning, I pop those suckers off the tray, bolting them onto my Kurt Vice, yeah. and I'm ready to rip. Let's abstract that one layer back. You need somebody to run that CNC machine. So even if it's during the day, you need somebody to cam it up, tool it up, monitor the machine while it's running. So. Well, I mean, the argument could be made that that's already all been done. You just need another guy to go hit the button because he's going to be running his machine. Well, someone has to do it. Well, yeah, it's already been... Say it's running the same part that this machine's already running. Say I'm doing a run of a 1,000 parts Okay. on this machine. I have an identical twin machine next door to it. I don't need to redo any of that work. I recycle the work and I just hit go. So now I'm hitting go on two machines. Okay. Yeah, I mean, if it is the exact same machine... But you still have to put together your tools because if the other machine's running that program, you need I'm to, just hitting you like a machinist would because he's going to say, well, I've already done all that. And, yeah. and not to say that it's not time that we should account for, which is what you're saying right now. I'm just saying a lot of these things, people like a, a machinist is just glazing yeah. over because they're like, well, that's duh. I this, do that with everything. This isn't a fair comparison though because – if, if if your goal is to add production capacity, then you should get the matching machine because you're not going to be creating equal parts. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which is why I wasn't assuming that you were right. just... But you agree with that, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, if, if your goal is to just create twice as many parts, then yeah, you should get a duplicate machine. But it will come with like, you'll have to duplicate your tools and... Maybe you'll be able to share operators, maybe. So let's just say the same thing, but the goal isn't to add capacity. It's just, it's more experimental, like we were talking about. Yeah. And then for sure additive. Yeah. Um, you won't necessarily, if you add a machine, you won't necessarily have to add labor. Whereas with a CNC machine, if you add a CNC machine, there's a good chance you're actually going to have to add workforce as well. For sure. I see that. Maybe not one-to-one, but the time that you're interacting with the machine is significantly different. CNC, you know, milling machine. I keep saying CNC, but I, I'm talking about like a milling machine or a lathe or something like that. Do you think that um, an, a 3D printer in the shop could help with, this just popped into my mind, but with planning, like uh, I'm talking the execution of a single part. Mm-hmm. Do you think printing a part could help you plan around probing it, 
Yeah. Um, or setting up your machine for production run. 100%. You see that as valuable? Uh, I, I visited a shop in Park City. And, I don't uh, know who it was. Do you? There's only so many. They may or may not do... Uh, they do a very... Ex- they were, In this particular case, they were machining very, very high-value uh, gear housings. Yep. Okay. Okay. I know. They so, were one of my... They were one of my clients. Okay, cool. So with these, the industrial supply. These guys, I believe that. I mean, it's a big shop. And they're doing high value gear housing. So yeah. helicopter gear housings. Mm-hmm. And these castings, I was surprised to learn by the time they get to the machine shop for finished machining, so machining of tolerance, these castings are valued at sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars a piece. And they were using 3D printed parts to prove out their CAM programs. So they have these big horizontal machining centers, four axis machining centers, and quite elaborate setups to get to these like bearing races and board holes and things like that. And they prove out their programs with a plastic part for a couple of reasons. One, if you scrap that part, you've invested $100 into it instead of $80,000. And then also too, like when you crash or something like that, you're not going to disrupt the actual machine alignment. There, there's other benefits, but that's it. They're planning. They're using it to plan, validate, cool. uh, validate their processes. Um, you could be doing it in other ways too. I mean, we've used in many ways we would call that like a, a printed surrogate a surrogate part. And this, this, I don't want to get off topic away from machine shops, but, uh, you might do it to, you see more and more robots in machine shops and a quest for automation. Um, you, you and I both know well, like lights out's the goal. Yeah. Yeah. A quest for automation. How do you validate those processes without <laughs> allowing, without the, the processes like damaging themselves? 3d printed parts are a good way of doing that. Yeah particularly because they're weaker than metal parts. A crash. So it's beneficial because it's not as strong as metal. Yeah. Yeah. I thought of another way that I could use it personally. Um, I do some machining on the side, not for fun. It Mm -hmm. started out as fun. It's not fun anymore. But (laughs) I, we've changed machines a few times and maybe someone else has been in this same situation, but we're making the same part on a new machine. Yep. And it has this tapered bore on it. It's a very specific tapered bore. And every time we mill it on a new machine, the depth of the mating component changes mm-hmm. because it's just off. It only needs to be off a thousandth of an inch, a half a thou. And now all of a sudden the seating position yeah. of that mating part can be higher or lower relative to the to the part. And so that being a critical part of this, this, uh, or feature of this part. I wonder if had I 3d printed it first, you know, I've changed the model a couple times just to accommodate new machines, whatever. I'm pretty sure I can get an accurate enough representation of that taper. I could use it as a surrogate part and ship that to the customer because it takes me a lot of time to make, not not a ton, but it takes me time to iterate and make these changes. Right. Because currently like I have to mill apart and come up with the cam and all that stuff and then send him a finished part. Yeah. He test fits it and 
if he doesn't like it, it sucks for me because yeah. I I might have machined six that night or something right. just to like pump out. Because you're gonna a few want if, to. Yeah. If he says yes, now right. all of a sudden those are all scrap. Yeah. When maybe I could have just 3D printed three or four of them in different um, configurations, let's uh-huh. say, and he can pick the right one. And then that tells right. me I never had to set up the machine for five or six different revisions. I just had to make five or six models. Yeah. So you're going to make the models either way, right? So right. that yep. that time you cannot use one way or the other. But for you to get on the machine and cut some of those, it's going to take at least an afternoon, say. Like, and me not being a professional yeah. machinist, it's an ordeal to get in right. the shop and actually start which making Many chips. people are, you know? And so when you're using a machine tool like that, which will destroy itself if, <laughs> if given permission, uh, you, you tend to work more slowly, you verify your work, et cetera. It's gonna take you at least an afternoon to create those parts. And like you said, because you invested all of that time, you're not gonna get up and cut one of them. You're gonna want a few more. Verse, how much hands-on time? 20 minutes hands-on time? On the printer side? Yeah. If that. If that. Yeah. I could print all six of them, all six inter- iterations on one print bed. Yeah. So imagine a scenario where you're a job shop and you have clients in the med device field. And in med device, you create, uh, one, a lot of prototypes, but two, assembly line components, stations that are designed to do processes. And these are largely custom. So you have dozens of machine components per station. Oftentimes you are, uh, you're specifying aluminum or Delrin, not because you need the material properties. It's just because you know that's what's going to be cheapest and quickest for the machine shop to turn around. And either one would be good enough in these scenarios. A machine shop, could see that and suggest like, hey, I know you specified this, but if you allow me to create it in ASA or polycarbonate or nylon on the printed side, I can turn this job around in five days rather than four weeks. And I'll probably come in at a cheaper price as well. Yeah. And both sides are incentivized to pursue that if it's possible because the machine shop is probably gonna have a much higher margin They'll sweep that job through in five days that opens the door to the next job. And they have a much better understanding of the actual cost to produce those parts. Not only will it be more accurate, they'll have that information much sooner. I mean, imagine how much work it would be to quote three dozen parts accurately. Not my job. And it's a significant, <laughs> they're always, they're Not taking guesses. Me. Yeah. You're, you're taking educated, educated guesses, guesses, educated sure. guesses at that point. And, uh, you know, like with your parts that you do, you, you have good margin, but if you scrap four parts, that job probably wasn't worth it at that point. No. Yeah. Yeah. It, that's why it's not fun. <laughs> yeah. But I can only imagine the stresses and stuff that goes into being a legitimate production shop because mm-hmm. it's like anything happens with your machines, one goes down, uh, you, you run out of tools yeah. that day. Yeah. Man. That's a, that's a loss of money. So God bless them. <laughs> yeah. So I guess like, what, what have we done today? We've explained 
kind of the hesitations. We've explained some good ideas for how it might be used. Yeah. This episode wasn't intended to go through all the scenarios that right. that a CNC shop could or a machine shop could use additive. We did suggest a few, but really it comes down to opportunity. Adoption, yeah, it's and comfortability. Like we we want to make everyone comfortable with this change. Like like you said, you could be if you need to be a little more comfortable, you could buy yeah. a three four hundred dollar printer, stick it on your desk at home, and start making parts. If that makes you more comfortable yeah. to suggest it in the shop, that gives you an opportunity to learn a little bit more about yeah. it. Yeah, I think right now, if if you start down this path, it's you're doing that because you can do it in a comfortable way. If you wait, you're not going to have the choice, and it is going to be more uncomfortable because it's going to be forced on you. Yeah, and I mean this isn't this isn't as shocking. I don't want to make 3D printing sound like this is going from manual milling to CNC. This is it's bigger than it's that. It's not <laughs> I think it's bigger than that. But, but it's it, not you're not relearning cam. Yeah. You're not it's not even as hard as learning one cam to the next. True. All I'm saying is you can pick up and print your part on the first day your printer's plugged in. Yeah, that's true. It's not like, oh my gosh, I've got to learn how to run this equipment. It's like five or six button clicks true, and you can be printing. Yeah, I guess it just depends on what scenario we have in our head when we're talking about it. And, you know, CNC has replaced 99% or more of manual machining. 3D printing is not going to do that. 3D printing is not going to replace all of yeah. CNC machining. But if we are talking about the future of printing in the machine shop, and now I'm talking about like a system like the Velo system, where you're creating very high value parts and you're creating parts to spec and you're delivering them, they're certified, they're into regulated industries, that jump is significant. Yeah, that's a big one. It is a big one. And that's coming. But there is so much opportunity there. So much opportunity. Speaking of that... You're giving a webinar. I have two webinars next week. Which tell, is, tell us about them in case anybody wants to see Tyler's pretty face in person or at least on a, <laughs> yeah. virtually. Well, fairly quickly, we have a webinar on Tuesday about uh, choosing metal pre-processing software, which will be okay. It's just basically... <laughs> <laughs> It'll be good. Yeah. We have we have our first laser powder bed fusion system coming. We have to select a a slicing software, essentially. And so I'm just, just kind of discussing how I'm choosing. Okay. And then on Thursday, we have a webinar covering uh, basically fluid dynamics and implica Ooh. implications of a system like Velo. Like, so a new paradigm in manufacturing cap capability. What does that mean for people who are dealing with fluids? So think about uh, turbo machinery, uh, think about heat exchangers, anything that has fluid running through it, hydraulics, fluid power. What are the implications of shifting the manufacturing capability? That one, it's dense. I've been doing some. Re I've been doing <laughs> a lot of research. Where can people find these? Uh, Goengineer.com/webinars, and you just register there. Yep. Yeah, Throw in your for that email. Plug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I want to make sure that uh, you have more than one or two people show up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> they usually do a good job. Our marketing team does a good job of of marketing the webinars. Well, the technical team does a great job of delivering value. Yeah. And that's what pe keeps people coming back. 
sell you. You do a great job of delivering value. I do a small part, but we do we do <laughs> webinars. Humble. Do, we do webinars almost every day of the month. Yeah. More yeah. days than not. It's usually SolidWorks. Usually SolidWorks. Yeah. But this is this is a big deal. I imagine there's gonna be some people that find their way that are maybe investors just yeah. to try and get a little bit more. Velo is a hot topic right now. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, it's it's cool. I think get to know Tyler a little bit better. Plug, uh, tune into one of these webinars. He's laughing right now. Yeah, I don't, don't know why he does this. <laughs> he gets shy. Is that shy? Is that your shy laugh? What is that? I don't know. You feel like I'm patronizing you? Are he, you? <laughs> he hates that. No, I'm not. I I would tune in. I'm going to tune in. But what I'm saying is, if I was listening and made it to the end of this podcast, I know for sure I'd find interest in it. Yeah, I think so. That's true. Just tune in for a second and then get bored and then untune. <laughs> Just kidding. Well, all right. Thanks. Yeah, I mean that was a, that conversation was excellent, and we stayed on topic. We did it. If you have any questions about that, want us to go more in depth on anything, shoot us an email. We still put those in the, yep. the description, right? So interact with us a little more. We we are going to come into the new age. We're going to get an Instagram account. We're going to do something. But for now, this is what we got. Old school email. You got to yeah. hit us up on email. Please do. And uh, we'll chat next week. Cool. See you then. Take care.